All right, if you have your Bibles, Leviticus chapter number 10, we're going to uh, uh, dig into a couple of uh, lessons. I I may take three, maybe four lessons to deal with this, and I know this is not a, uh, 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 probably a, uh, I'm not going to be comprehensive, I'm not going to be able to put it all together uh, for you, but we'll we'll, we'll hit some high points on this, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll look at this story, very tragic story, by the way. When we get to Leviticus 10, this is one of those stories you look at and say, man, uh, very harsh, very abrupt, um, a strange story. Uh, but the story and what happened here should not surprise us. Uh, this should not be a surprise to any Bible believer when something as drastic as this event is should come. Uh, Leviticus 10, if you look in verse number 1 together, uh, in verse 1 says, And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. You pray with me and for me. We're going to have special music today, and, uh, and then we'll get into the lesson this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity uh, to come together. We do pray that you'd help us, Lord, as we evaluate and look at the biblical mandate of worship, what it is, what it's not. And, uh, Lord, I pray that you'd help your people as we are in a very interesting time. And give us grace, Lord, to receive what you would have us receive. Uh, help us, Lord, to reject false worship, strange fire. Uh, that, Lord, uh, was brought here uh, as an offering to you, as a sacrifice to you, and uh, that you rejected. So bless your people. Thank you for the reading of the Word of God. And thank you, Lord, that we have it today, a copy of it, uh, in our hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. that separated me from Christ my Lord was so vast a crossing I could never fall from where I was to his demand it seems so
Celeste. Leviticus 10 this morning, and um, I guess you can subtitle this, God does not want your strange fire, and uh, he does not want our false worship, Uh, and uh, a very strange, tragic story here in Leviticus 10. Uh, but building up to this is kind of the uh, the backstory that I think is worth uh, noting and kind of looking at, and I think many times... Uh, we, we fail to make application from stories as tragic as this is uh, to where we are today and where we're uh, heading. Uh, the emergent church today, or the charismatic movement today, it's kind of under a lot of headings, uh, a, experiential, culturally driven, uh, emotionally charged uh, church service. Uh, those those uh, comprise of about 500 million worldwide, about half a billion. Now, now put this in con- uh, context. There's 1 billion Catholics in the world. There's 500 million charismatics and emergent church goers and, uh, that, that kind of move into this, uh, this massive, by the way, massive movement worldwide. Uh, another, if you would, context, there's about 14 million uh, Mormons. And so this is a massive growing uh, movement and that a lot of Bible-centered ministries are not calling out uh, and they're not uh, preaching against. And it becomes a uh, sort of a double-edged sword. And here's why. Uh, How dare you uh, attack this uh, because you don't love and we're all Christians and that kind of narrative uh, that uh, they, they follow. Uh, it's uh, and I'll say it. You can say it this way: that it's almost as if it's a Trojan horse that's entered into the house of God, and and, it, and it's destroying God's people and their view of God. And and I'll say this: some know what they're doing. Some know what they're doing. They they know what they're doing. They know that they're deceiving people. They know they're liars. Uh, they know that what they're doing is fraudulent. What they're doing is not lifting, uplifting God. They're deceivers. The Bible calls them deceivers, deceiving and being deceived. Uh, the Bible says he creep into houses and leads silly women laden with sins. So they're creepy people. <laughs> and they, they move and they're silent. And, uh, and so they, but they know what they're doing. They're crafting. They're working. And they're uh, behind the scenes doing everything they can to further uh, the movement that they're a part of. But the large majority of those that are in the movement don't know that they're being duped. They don't know they're being deceived. And God's people are easily deceived, especially if they don't have a grasp on God's word. Uh, they can get pulled into a movement, pulled into a spirit, and they've not followed First uh, John 4 principle of trying the spirits, whether they be of God. And they can get pulled into something and be in part of something that is extremely dangerous to do. And I'm going to t- talk about how dangerous this is. And the danger is going, is, is going to be seen in the culture and the deterioration of the culture. Uh, I'm going to talk about this in the, in the home builders class tonight. Uh, the attack on the family. Uh, the, the rise of, of, of humanism, agnosticism, atheism, atheism. And it's because the church has been Trojan horsed by an ideology that does not preach the word of God. It's a very dangerous, seductive movement. And it's very uh, uh, likely that a lot of people are in it and not really know that they're being duped and they're being deceived. Uh, case in point, uh, when the northern kingdom separated from the southern kingdom in Israel, ten tribes went north. And two tribes stayed in Jerusalem in the south. And Jeroboam was the first king of the northern kingdom. uh, And the capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria. The capital of the southern kingdom was Jerusalem. Uh, 
And people in the southern kingdom had the advantage, so to speak, at least in terms of worship, because they had the temple, and they would go to the temple, and they would worship, and they felt like I went to church. Well, the ten tribes in the north said, man, we want to get back to church. Like some of you that said, man, can't wait for COVID to be over. We'll get back to church. God's people should want to be in church and be in the house of God. Well, they wanted to get back down there. Well, Jeroboam came up with a very crafted idea that, hey, don't worry about going down there. We'll make a couple of temples up here for you. You can read this, and we'll maybe dig into this later in the study. Uh, and they, they put one in Dan, and they put one in Bethel, and they put a golden calf in each one of these temples. And Jeroboam made a proclamation, the same proclamation that Aaron made in Exodus 32. Uh, and I'll paraphrase that up, these be the, the gods, O Israel, that brought thee out of the land of Egypt. So, so the apostasy and the idolatry that took place in Exodus 32 was repeated hundreds of years later, and no one said anything. Okay. So I'm saying this, that it is very seductive. God's people can be pulled into something unknowing. If they don't have an absolute authority to compare the movement with, they can be pulled into anything. 500 billion worldwide and growing. And there's a reluctance on dealing with this issue because it's, uh, it's one of those things you don't love. And you're not loving and you're hateful and you judge and so the church that are Bible-centered and not culturally-centered seems to be very silent on, 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 this, on this movement. But before we get into this, let me just remind you that it's not uncommon for uh, false worship services. In fact, it's prevalent today. It's uh, almost a plague today that false worship services are taking place. Strange fire that's being offered to the Lord. But man's ultimate purpose is to worship God. You've been created to worship God. That's your ultimate purpose for why you are here, is to ultimately worship God. And the Bible says in John chapter 4, as Jesus was speaking to the woman uh, at the well, he says, the hour cometh and now is. Now listen to the phrase here, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So it's indication that Lord Jesus Christ is, if, if you were drawing a distinction between, between true worship and false worship. He says, so true worship is anchored in the truth and it must be done. The word, the word must is used in spirit. There's no flesh, okay, involved in true worshiping. It's not a fleshly experience. It's not a carnal experience. It's not something that you feel, although you will, if you would experience something, but it's not anchored in feelings or emotionalism. It's anchored in truth, but it's done through the spirit. And the Bible says they must worship me in spirit and in truth. And here's what the Bible says for the father seeketh such to worship him. So the Lord Jesus Christ is saying that his father is looking for people that want to worship him in a true sense, in a true way. Is that making sense? And so this is something that is not an opinion of me or someone else. God has weighed in historically on how he is to be worshipped. It is not something that, uh, that, that, that there's wiggle room on. There's no area that we can just kind of say God will be okay with this. That is the problem, is that we are forcing our mandate on God and rather letting God tell us how he would be worshipped. So look at the story here. Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, of course, are introduced here, not for the first time, but for what they did here, and this will be their first and last uh, worship service, uh, because they were killed. Fire, verse number two, uh, from the Lord. Uh, the Bible says there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And then it goes on to say here, and Moses uh, said unto Aaron, of course, Aaron is the father of these boys, uh, that, uh, that uh, he is, says, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh unto me, nigh me, and before all people, I will be glorified. And now watch this, and Aaron held his peace. So I can see this very heated discussion coming up with Aaron. What just happened? My boys are dead. I, I, and I don't understand this. And Moses said, hold your peace. Hold your peace. 
And then there was no one to mourn for these boys. There's no indication they had a proper burial. They were taken and drug out of the camp. And, uh, and it says in verse number, uh, 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 in fact, verse number four, Moses called Mishael and Eliphon, the sons of Uzael, the uncle of Aaron, and said unto them, come near, listen to this, carry your brethren from, from the sanctuary out of the camp. And they went near, now listen to this th- phrase here, and carried them in their what? Coats. Out of the camp. Now that's the strangest verse in this text here. Because these boys were incinerated. They were burned. And yet their coats were intact. They were carried out by their coats. So just viewing this thing, you understand, this is a supernatural event that took place. This is a divine judgment on these boys. Their bodies were, were burnt, gone, and yet their coats were fine. They carried them out in their coats. They were told not to mourn for them. They were told not to cover their heads. They said in verse number 7, And you shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die. Uh, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And he did according to the words of Moses. Now the point here is, a tragic and as a Bible believer, this should not be a surprise to us. Should not be a surprise. But look here, if you would, in kind of the backstory. Look back in Leviticus, or actually Exodus 24, with me, Exodus 24. We'll use our Bibles a little bit. Is that okay to use our Bibles in a Bible-believing church? All right. Exodus 24, uh, pick it up in verse number 1. I want to show you how privileged these boys were. Okay? Privileged. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. Watch what this is, verse, verse 1. And he said unto the Moses, Come up unto the Lord, thou and Aaron, Nadab, where? And Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship ye afar off. Now, as you remember, back in Exodus chapter 19, there was uh, a, a, a huge separation between the presence of God and even the animals, because anyone that would cross the line would be immediately killed. And these boys were allowed to come closer than the others. That's a privilege. There's a powerful privilege, a backstory of how these boys began, if you would, their ministry. Look at Exodus chapter 28 and verse number 1. And take thou unto thee, I'm in Exodus 28 verse 1, please catch up with me. And, uh, and uh, take thou and uh, thee Aaron, thy brother, and his sons with him. Among, uh, from among the children of Israel, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office, even Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, Itamar, Aaron's sons. So you're with me. Stay, stay with me for a second. So these boys were sanctified or set apart for the purpose of the priest's office. Okay? So what God is doing here, he's setting up a mandate of how I'm going to be approached. This is the earliest form, not of worship, but how God dictated how he would be worshipped. They had worship before this, but now we have God setting up a priestly office, a way by which man can approach him and come into his presence in these days. So these boys were privileged to be a part of the priestly, if you would, uh, uh, service. Now when you get to chapter 8 of Leviticus, turn there quickly, chapter 8. You'll find there that they're, they're dressed in a certain way. If you look in verse number seven, the Bible says in verse number six, Leviticus chapter eight, verse number six. Now this is leading up to this event in chapter 10, but look at chapter eight, verse six. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put upon him the coat and girded him with a girdle and clothed him with a robe and put an ephod upon him and girded him with the curious girdle of the ephod and bound it unto him therewith. Note here, this is done to Aaron and his sons. Look in verse number eight. And he put the breastplate upon him, also put the breastplate of the Urim and Thummim. And he put the mitre upon his head, also upon the mitre, even upon the forefront, did he put the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now here is a golden plate you find about what this is. A golden plate, uh, Exodus chapter 28 talks about holiness unto the Lord. Exodus 28 verse 36 explains what that golden crown was. So think about this. Here is the priests in those days 
They have the Urim, they have the Thummim. This is the way God would communicate to those people in these days. They had a mitre or a turban with a golden plate in the front of it that said, Holiness unto the Lord. Uh, they were washed, they were sanctified, they were set apart. This is a very complicated way that God was going to be worshipped. It was very comprehensive. In other words, you couldn't just skip a step. You, you couldn't just say, you know what, I, I don't feel like doing that. And some, some of it sounds somewhat strange. Look, if you would, down in verse, uh, look in uh, at chapter 8, uh, pick it up in verse, uh, verse number 14. And he brought the bullock of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands upon the head of the bullock at, for a sin offering. And he slew it, and Moses took the blood and put it upon the horns of the altar around about his, uh, with his finger and purified the altar and poured the blood at the bottom of the altar and sanctified it to make reconciliation upon it. And he took all the fat, verse 16, that was upon the inwards, the cow above the liver, and the two kidneys, and, the, uh, and their fat, and Moses burned it upon the altar. But the bullock, and his hide, and his flesh, and his dung, he burnt with fire without the camp, as the Lord commanded Moses. So you understand how complicated this is? There's some parts that had to go without the camp, some parts went to the altar, verse 18, and he brought the ram for the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands upon the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses sprinkled the blood upon the altar round about and cut the ram into pieces. And Moses burnt the head and the pieces and the fat. And he washed the inwards and the legs and the water. And Moses burnt the whole ram upon the altar. It was burnt as burnt sacrifice for a sweet savor. An offering was made by fire unto the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. And he brought the other ram and the ram of consecration. And now listen to this. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands upon the head of the ram. And he slew it. And Moses took the blood of it, put it upon the tip of Aaron's right ear, and upon the thumb of his right hand, and upon the great toe of his right foot. Now say, so really, what, what are you doing? Okay, so he takes the blood, guys, ladies, and from the ram, and puts it on his right ear, puts it uh, on his right hand, and puts it on the toe. Not the middle toe, not the little toe, but the big toe. The Bible calls it the great toe. Okay? You know, it's the big toe on the right toe. So why God do that? I don't know. Okay? But that's the prescription that God made. Why well, I think I wouldn't do the big toe thing. Okay, that's your choice. But they did. In verse 22, the Bible says, and he brought the other ram uh, in, verse con- in the consecration. Oh, verse number 24. And he brought Aaron's sons and Moses put on the blood, uh, uh, the blood upon the tip of their right ear and upon the thumbs of their right hands and upon the great toes in their right feet. And Moses sprinkled the blood upon the altar round about. So here's Nadab, Abihu. Uh, they have blood now on their right ear. They have blood on their right hand and they have blood on their right big toe. Okay, so that's done. So you can see now the, the boys are dressed. They got the mitre. They've got the holiness under the Lord. They got the urine. They got the thummim. They got the robe. They've been sanctified. They've been set apart. They've been very privileged to be a part of a very, very sacred ministry, the ministry of the worship of God. So up to this point, he looks like a pretty good church kid. All right. I mean, Looks pretty good. Got his Bible. Okay, it would be comparable to uh, those that are here this morning. Man, you're you're in church, and you got your Bible under your arm, and you're taking notes, and oh, that's good. Oh, that's wonderful. It's good. Love it. Wonderful. But it gets bad in the next chapter. The opening verses in verse number 10 are the change of what happened. I'm going to come back to the last verse of chapter 9, but look at verse uh, number 1. And Nabadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered, listen to this phrase, strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And, And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them. And they died before the Lord, devoured them. Strange fire. The strange fire that came is interesting because it's different than the fire that came uh, in the last chapter, last verse of the previous chapter. If you note here, there's a massive difference between the two fires. In fact, in verse number 24 of Leviticus 9, after all of this complicated, okay, comprehensive, God-directed way to approach God, you'll find in verse 24, and there came fire 
out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar, the burnt offering and the fat. Now, up to this point, this is a, this is, this is, uh, I guess, consistent with the fire that the children of Israel had already seen. But man, the first time that it has actually come down and consumed a very specific location, the altar was, was, was consumed. The, the sacrifice was consumed. And when, verse number 24, which when all the people saw, they shouted and fell on their face. Now, if you're there, you're going to be like, and fall on your face. I'm not trying to scare anybody, but that is what they did. Why? This fire came down, consumed the altar. Where'd that fire come from? Came from God. All right. Well, Nadab and Abihu in the next chapter say, that was cool. Are y'all here? And they start doing something that they should never have started. They went down, if you would, a system of thought that cost them their lives. And, and there was a eternal statute that was given after this. If you notice that God was very specific on how he would be worshipped, chapter 8 through the end of chapter number 9. There's no wiggle room. It's very specific. And so up to this point, as I mentioned, everything looks good. But when you get to chapter 10, a fire comes down, the unquenchable fire of God, and consumes them. The Bible uses that word uh, very clearly as you find the word devoured them. They're gone. They're gone. And so the fire that came down in chapter 9 consumed the sacrifice. The fire that comes down beginning of chapter 10 consumes the sons of Aaron. Killed them in a very dramatic fashion. And Nadab and Abihu's death raises a whole lot of questions. Wow. What went wrong? What what is strange fire? What time did they come? Did they enter in the Holy of Holies? What was it that caused them to be killed? And I could take you to ever to other verses that show you some interesting places where God will not accept strange incense back there in Leviticus. If you would chapter 30, verse number nine, I'm not going to ask you to turn there. There's the remember, there's the altar of sacrifice. Let me just kind of lay it back out for some of you are kind of moving into this. The tabernacle was the precursor of the temple. The tabernacle had one entrance coming in. When you come into the beginning of the entrance, there's the altar is the brazen altar or your sacrifice were burned on that altar around the right side of the altar, left side of the altar. You'll come to the altar of incense. Oh, excuse me. The, the laver, uh, inside this, this, this laver is a, a polished brass. It was water representing the water of God's word. You would go into the holy place, not the holy of holies, but the holy place. This table of showbread was there. The candle, uh, labra was there and the altar of incense was there. The altar of incense, you would offer incense as very specific incense. And you could not come to that altar of incense, uh, with a strange incense, a strange fire. It was forbidden. In other words, you just couldn't just grab something from the weeds, cook it up, and bring it into God. That was forbidden according to Exodus chapter 30. So when you start comparing these verses, whatever they did in offering strange fire to God, we know this, that it was not supposed to be there. This fire was not supposed to be in this place. Just as the altar of incense, there's nothing that was to be brought to the altar of incense. It was to be put on the altar of sacrifice. There were two different altars. You can't take one and put it on the other. This was a strange fire when you come to chapter number 10 of Leviticus. It was something that did not belong there. And yet for some reason, these boys ignored the warning and shrugged off what God said about how he was going to be approached and just did it their own way. Statement. Some of the most harshest punishments in the Bible. And listen to me, ladies and gentlemen, listen to me, kids, teenagers. Some of the harshest punishments in the Bible occur during corrupt worship. I'm going to prove that. Not just tonight, I'm going to work through this. 
Some of the harshest punishments are done on the heels of corrupt worship. Well, pastor, you're in the Old Testament. You know, they, they stoned their children if they disobeyed, and they, they, they had all kinds of rules and all those things. Romans 15.3 says this, 15.4, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. Don't you, don't, don't you discount Leviticus. Don't discount and throw under the bus Exodus. Don't throw Genesis. Don't throw what was written aforetime away because they're written for our learning. You can learn some things by going back and reading what God did in those times. And so when we come to the story like this, we have to just ponder and pause and say, what, what happened and how can I apply this to our churches today? And I'll dare say that this fiery death was a shock. I mean, you're, you're just cruising through chapter 8, chapter 9. Man, God loved that sacrifice, consumed that sacrifice, and bam, chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu are killed. Here are some lessons. Dealing with false worship, number one. Number one. Small sins are a big deal to God. That goes against our culture, doesn't it? Small sins are a big deal to God. God raining down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, we can accept that. Okay, they were, they were living in abomination. Uh, they, were, they were Sodomites, and, and we can kind of excuse it in our mind. They got what they deserved. Sure, I mean, that was absolutely justified. But in our carnal culture today, our love culture today, when we come to this story right here, we say, whoa, whoa, I, I see how God could kill a bunch of people in Sodom and Gomorrah, but man, but, but incinerating these two boys for coming with strange fire, a little overkill, a little overkill. But I want to remind you that the pages in the Bible are marked with violations of small sins. Small. Adam and Eve, listen. You can eat of every tree in the garden. Every other tree. This is one small thing I want you to do. I don't want you to eat of this tree. Small. Small. I remind you that as Lot was running for his life with his two daughters and his wife, And all she did was turn around. Small. I mean, just to look. He was instructed, don't look back. And she looked back. Small thing. And she turned into a pillar of salt. When Moses came and hit the rock, he was to speak to the rock. He smote the rock. Just a small thing but prevented him from going into the promised land. When Uzzah said, I got an idea, this ark is going to fall, I'll steady the ark, most likely out of a good heart, most likely out of good intentions, steadying the ark was a violation of God's command and killed him on the spot. Small. Just small. Lying about a real estate withholding. New Testament. Come on now. Ananias and Sapphira come in. Couple had some money, they were selling things, and they lied to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, in the New Testament church, in the house of God, and God struck them dead. Powerful. So scenes like this will teach you that there are no small sins with a holy God. And sins only seem trivial when we take God's holiness and treat it tritely. The less you think about God's holiness, the more you will endorse sin in your life. Are you all here this morning? I'm simply saying, the less we understand about who God is, the holiness of God, the more you'll find yourself doing things that are an abomination to God. 
That's why God is a consuming fire. He's light. He's pure. He's upright. He's sinless. He's surrounded by angels right now that are crying, holy, holy, holy. And when Isaiah stood before God, he impulsively said, woe is me, for I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips. So there is no small sins with God. It does not mean that there are not more serious, grave consequences of sin. But there are no small sins with God. He doesn't look the other way. So a high view of his holiness shows that even the smallest little things that we do commit eternal treason to him. Can can I just say this? The emergent, culturally driven church that we have today has taken the idea that my small sins that I commit and I can just do and I can endorse and I can love and I can have and I can just come to the house of God and I can chew my bubble gum and I can just play games with God is where the American culture is today. Small sins that you've grown comfortable with. Holding that grudge. Grudge not, the Bible says, one against another. If you're holding a grudge today and you're worshiping God today, do you realize that's an offense against a holy God? Your gossip and your malice and your evil speaking and your lying and your fornication Sex. Sex inside the house of God. And coming in as if God is okay with it. And he's not going to judge you. And no fire is going to come down from heaven. But you are sinning against a holy God. It's an affront against his holiness. Adultery. Drunkenness. Anger. How about this? How about unresolved conflict with your wife? How about husbands that have neglected their wives when the Bible says, likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, given honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. I can't even listen to your prayers if you're not getting along. Are y'all here today? I'm simply saying that we're in a culture that we have redefined the holiness of God. We've accepted a, if you would, a carnal, God-winking at sin God, repackaged him, and put him in pulpits across our country, and no one's saying anything about it. Fornication. Adultery. Teenage boys in our church going to other girls saying, let's have sex. In our church. Serious. Well, God hasn't killed me yet. Don't interpret God with holding his consuming fire as him not being concerned with your sin. So point number one, Small sins are a big deal to God. Sins are a big deal. Repentance is so needed in our churches today. We wonder why. We wonder why our country is where it's at today. We wonder why we don't have the revivals that we had in yesteryear. We wonder why we don't have people lined up outside waiting to hear the word of God. We wonder why we don't have the multiple conversions and baptistry waters stirred. I guarantee that we can lay some of it at the fact that we've just accepted, well, God's not saying anything. I'm just going to go ahead and do it. Small. Small sins are a big, big deal with God. Number two. Number two, how we worship matters big to God. 
How we worship matters big to God. If you would look in Leviticus chapter 8, how we worship. The Bible is clear, and I'm just going to work this point here. The Bible is clear that God cares how we approach him. He does. In the Bible, as we already read in John 4, they that worship God must worship him in truth and in spirit. Father seeketh such to worship him. So God dictates to man how he's to be approached. Man does not and should never come to God and say, you're going to take me as I am and I'm going to do what I want to do. Are you all here? Okay. Leviticus 8, pick it up in verse number 4. Moses did as the Lord commanded him. Say that with me. As the Lord commanded him. Okay, so when we cap chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter chapter 9, verse 24, we have a sacrifice that's consumed. It was good. It was wonderful. God accepted it. God was pleased. Where did it all begin? When they began to do what God commanded them. It's okay. Look, if you would, down at verse number 5. And Moses said unto the congregation, this is the thing which the Lord, what? Commanded to be done. Look at verse number 9. And he set a mitre upon his head, and upon the and even upon the mitre, even upon his forefront, did he put the golden crown as the Lord, what? Commanded. Moses, look at verse 13. And Moses brought Aaron's sons, put coats upon them, the same coats, by the way, that were not destroyed. Put coats upon them, and girded them with girdles, and put bonnets upon them, as what? The Lord commanded Moses. Can I just say this? What they're doing in chapter 8 and 9 is just following what God says. God, you say it, I'll do it. So the worship that God accepted was the worship that God commanded. The worship that God did not accept was the worship that God did not command. Look at chapter 10, verse number 1. Last part of verse number 1, chapter 10. The Bible says they offered strange fire before the Lord. Last part, which he what? Commanded them what? Not. Okay. Difference. So I'm looking at this verse here. Say, There's a huge difference here. 8, 9, they're commanded by God. They're obeying God. Chapter 10, they're doing something that's not commanded by God. So watch this. Watch this. Nadab and Abihu went rogue. <laughs> they did what they wanted to do. They thought what they wanted to think. They deceived their, their, their own selves. They say, God's going to accept it. This is going to be good. Just as we saw God consume that fire, watch this. And they were consumed very. And I hope I can convey this with so much love. And, I, and I, if I can have love and discernment on this to convey this, this, ladies and gentlemen, is extremely dangerous to do. To approach God. The way you think you should approach him. Yes. Perfect timing. So overlooking God's commands may have been well intended, but it costs them their lives. So how does that fit? How about this? Well, we need to find innovative ways to worship God. Anytime you see the innovative ways, you should put up your spiritual antennas. We need to be more creative. Nothing wrong with creativity. But you better be careful. We need to have cultural relevance. These are trademark statements in advertising campaigns in this type of movement today. We just need to be culturally relevant. So our modern apostate church, uh, church that is distorting truth, that are doing it under a satanic conspiracy, if you would, which is in the Bible, the word conspiracy. These are instruments of darkness to bring God's people under, if you would, a spiritual bondage because they think that, man, I'm just worshiping God, and you're not. You're part of a satanically charged ideology and worship that's strange fire to God. They have irreverent ideas. They have irreverent actions. They make false promises. They make false uh, uh, claims. They're fleshly. They're carnal. But it's very severe. It gets so bad. Remember when the scribes came to the Lord Jesus Christ in Mark 3, and they accused him of doing 
the works that he was doing under the power of Beelzebub. Remember that? They twisted around. They're claiming to do the work of God. But they're doing it under the power and inspiration of Satan. Dangerous. People get pulled into this. That's why Paul says, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtility. What does that mean? Sneaky. He's a con beast. So your mind should be corrupted by the simplicity that is in Christ. People get pulled into it. And I fear well-intended worshipers of Christ may be influenced by the spirit of this age and not the spirit of Christ. We should notice also that Nadab and Abihu were just not normal. They were just not the -the run-of-the-mill people. They were leaders. And God has a very special way and harsh way of judging leaders. Number three, number three, their worship, Nadab and Abihu's worship was under a different influence than that of God. Let's just kind of work through this a little bit. Go back to Leviticus 10 real quick and and, and know I'm working through this probably too much detail. I want you to see kind of like you ever went, you, you ever have something happen that After it, you start making, if you would, um, changes so it doesn't happen again. You ever do that? You hit your hand with a hammer. Okay. You say, now, what am I going to do so that I don't do that again? I was out fishing with Chris Sorison this week, and me and Chris were having a great time. And the, uh, the lures had the two treble hooks. We use a net to get the saw guy that Timothy caught out of the water, and the front hook gets caught in the net. I'm driving the boat. I said, Chris, I got an idea. I said, because we're all over the water, it's choppy. I said, I'll hold the back treble hook for you, and if you would just work that, I'm driving the boat. Sunk after, when he popped it out, it wasn't his fault. I looked, and my fingers were now one with the lure. And it was stuck way beyond the barb. <laughs> we had to use his pliers to actually yank it out. So I'm thinking to myself, I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> okay. I learned. <laughs> there's some things, there's some procedural issues that I will probably, and the next time that happens, I'm not touching that back trouble, trouble hook. I'm not touching Chris, get it yourself. <laughs> so look at verse 8. This is, if he would, the back, and we're going to change some things. Look at verse 8. And the Lord spake unto Aaron, saying, watch this, do not drink wine nor strong drink. Now, why do you say that? Okay. Thou nor thy sons with thee when thou, when you go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die. And it should be a statue forever throughout your generations. So Nadab and Abihu, they go down to the local bar. And they're at the brass bar. They're polishing the brass bar. They're getting a couple of Michelobes, maybe doing some shots of vodka. Hey, let's go ahead and put the priestly garments back on and go back to church. Not a stretch here that these boys were drunk when they went into the tabernacle of the congregation. They were most likely, listen to this, under the influence Now, listen, I'm just simply trying to lay this down. Alcohol has a way of influencing you to do things that you would not normally do. Right? It just does. You say things that you would not normally say. You act in ways that you would not normally act. This is not an anti-alcohol subject, although although I'm, 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 I'm against that. But the point I'm trying to make here is that the worship of Nadab and Abihu is being influenced by something else. And that's why it's very interesting as we discern this, and that's why as you look in verse number 10, 
why, why is it necessary that this statue be placed here for the children of Israel? Because verse number 10, that you may put a difference between holy and what? Unholy. That you may, and between what? And clean. So there's something about when you're not influenced the right way, you have no way of, if you were drawing a line between what is wrong and what is right. Are you all with with me? So the point is this, and this is number three. The worship was under a different influence. And ladies and gentlemen, when we worship God, the influence of our worship should be grounded not in our ideas, not in cultural relevance. Our our ideas and our mandate comes from God and his word. And so we should never be under an external influence from God's word when we worship God. It should always be anchored in the unchanging truth of God's word and should never be influenced by something other than that. Kondalini cult, Kondalini cult out of India. I was going to bring videos of this and I said, if I do this, it's going to introduce a horrible spirit into the church service today and I didn't want to do that. But there's some videos that people have contrasted the worship of, service of a Kundalini cult in India with the modern charismatic emergent church services today. And when you see the similarities, whether it's uncontrolled laughter, uncontrolled shaking, the ability to empower people with your hand, The intoxication, the, the, at least the appearance of intoxication, they put them together. The Kondalini cult is a satanic-inspired cult. And the same spirit that is controlling this is controlling this. And I'm saying that because there's a different influence. 1 John 4 is a good place to really work through those first couple of verses to try the spirits to see if they be of God. Number four. Number four, real quick, is um, by far not not the least important, but verse verse number four, how we separate matters. And, And when you look at what Moses told them to do that you may put it verse 10. They may put a difference between the holy and the unholy between the unclean and the clean. Uh, and that you may teach the children of Israel, all the statutes, which the Lord hath spoken unto them by the hand of Moses. It seems to indicate that Nadab and Abihu did not do that. They did not know what was unholy. They did not know what was uh, holy. They did not know what was clean and they did not know what was unclean. And it's important, isn't it, that our children are taught this. They're taught about the holiness of God. They're taught about what is unclean. They're taught about what is wrong and what is right. We should be in churches and we should be teaching and preaching where this is wrong and this is right. That we don't have a wishy-washy presentation of our culture today. If it's wrong, it needs to be called out as wrong. If it's right, it needs to be called out and admonished as right. And the, the reason is, is the Bible says, woe unto them that call evil good and good evil and put darkness for light and light for darkness and bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and it says, uh, be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness and what communion hath light with darkness? Ladies and gentlemen, as a preacher of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ, and as believers here today, we have been, we have been given a gift, a gift to be living in the days that we live. And when you look in John chapter 17, when Jesus prayed for you in John 17, those that should come after them, he says, I pray, Father, that thou wouldest not take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil. <laughs> so we're here to be light. We're not here to be part of darkness. 
And that's why it's very important. The doctrine of separation is not isolation. It's not you moving to, I'll use, I'll pick up Brother Marshall, Idaho. (laughs) No. The doctrine of, of separation is not isolation, but it does teach the dangers of participation. So separation is important. God's people, separated, holy, holy, dedicated to a religious purpose, holy, reverent in religion, holy, perfect or flawless, holy, separated or set apart, profane, treating sacred things with contempt, disregard, disrespect. Hmm. Holy, set apart, or dedicated for a specific purpose, as the Bible says your bodies are if you're saved. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Profane, irreverent in language, taking the name of God in vain. Profane, to violate something sacred. To treat with abuse, irreverence or contempt. To desecrate. When you take a temple of God and use it for pleasure, outside of the bounds of marriage. That's to desecrate the temple of God. The serious offense against God. To profane something is to put a wrong or unworthy use to something that is holy, to debase or defile something. Nadab and Abihu, they did their own thing. They did not understand the holiness of God. And they did not understand what was profane and unholy. And it cost them their lives. Nadab and Abihu were everything you don't, you don't want in a priest. They, they, they're everything you don't want in a, in a leader. They minimized sin. They made up their worship as they went. They made their own rules. They dictated how they would be. Um, they would approach God and their fault, their frailty. They, they, they are reminding us that they were just temporary priests. They were only temporary. They were bringing us to a perfect priest that was going to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. A priest that would never be defiled. A priest that would do always the will of the Father. Hebrews 7 verse 25 talks about that priest. That's our high priest. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Nadab and Abihu was pointing yet again to the imperfect priesthood that was going to come, pointing to one day the priest of Jesus Christ coming that was going to make atonement for sins once and for all. Once and for all. That he, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without spot to God. Wow. What a Christ. It's the same God, folks. And ladies and gentlemen, if you're not saved, you need a better priest than a Nadab and Abihu. <laughs> you need a better, listen, you need a better priest than the religion that Nadab and Abihu are promoting. You need Jesus Christ. You need the high priest. And so you hear, say, Pastor, okay, all right. We've got a pretty nasty situation here. We've got two dead upcoming priests. Church kids, what happened? Well, they worshiped God the wrong way. They thought God just shrugged it off as small sins. They weren't separated. And they frankly didn't know the difference between holy and unholy. They did not know the difference. And that is largely what's happening in our churches across our country. Strange fire. If God, and he did this morning, when you came in and you sang together, wonderful songs, special was wonderful. Lynn, thank you. I was listening to her practice that song last night in the house. Beautiful. It was, it was offering a, 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 a incense to God through song. Beautiful. Listening to you sing this morning was beautiful singing. But I wonder if God were able to evaluate 
the praise of our lips, looking at that through the spiritual lens of God to him, was it a offering of sacrifice that through our lips we praise him or is it strange fire, strange fire? Only God knows that. But the Holy Spirit has told you, I've got some strange fire. 